Welcome back, everybody, to the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from the megacity metropolis of Toronto. I am your host, Eric Anthony. I'm very, very happy to welcome back to the cave a good friend of the show. I think this is his fourth appearance now. It's none other than the VP of Sales and Marketing for Valiant Entertainment, my good friend, Mr. Matthew Klein. Matthew, welcome back. How have you been doing, good sir? I am, you know, I think like everybody, I'm just looking forward to the day when we have enough vaccine available that I can make it back to Fan Expo Canada. Um, And, you know, we could be be meeting up and doing an episode like this in person, my friend. But all in all, I... Things, things are good. I, I have very little to complain about right now. I'm very grateful for the position I'm in. And, uh, man, it's, it's new comic book days. We record this. Savage number one comes out today, which is our first number one of 2021. Very so nice. it's a good day. Excellent, excellent. I'm I'm going to hold you to that podcast in person thing because I'm really looking forward to Fan Expo coming back, and I'm looking forward to that Valiant table being here, where I can uh, just add to the collection of of books to read and and books that I need to read. So uh, from from your mouth oh, to we'll God's back ears, you up. don't you worry. <laughs> excellent. Um, so tell me about what's happening with Valiant Entertainment because I know. Uh, 2020 through a wrench in everything's plans. Uh, how did it affect Valiant Entertainment on the comic front? Because I know I, I just finished reading uh, Doctor Tomorrow, which I was really excited for the last time we chat. But uh, how was 2020 mm-hmm. as a whole for you on Valiant Entertainment side? You know, 20, 2020 is uh, 2020 is going to go down as as one of the most you know, the craziest, most fascinating years in the history of comics. There's no question. Um, for, for us, it was like every other publisher, you know, we had to rearrange our entire publishing strategy. We had to re figure, reevaluate and reprioritize, um, everything about the way that we, we make comics, the way that we release comics. And, you know, it became one of those things where we were no longer just thinking about, you know, a publishing schedule six months ahead, but 18 to 24 to 36 months ahead is where I'm looking. Right. So, you know, what we did is we, we rearranged uh, a lot of the calendar and uh, we we're looking at timing for these new number ones to come out to give them the best chance possible for success. And based on what we're seeing with Savage number one and the generated buzz we're getting for Shadow Man in April, uh, we're really, really excited, actually, for the way that everything is timing out right now. Um, so it's it's been, you know, it's been one of those things where every single week we're reevaluating um, the schedule. We're, we're asking ourselves where we're at. We're asking the retailers, you know, how they're doing, what they're ready for. Um, as fans, I wish we could be doing 20 books a month right now, but you know, it's, it's one of the things where we're, we're just building back up steam, uh, from a narrative standpoint. And we're looking at, you know, how we build back up our pub plan too. So it's cool. The, the biggest thing is just that like so many of the series that we're debuting in 2020, now they're coming out finally in 2021. So the hardest thing for me has just been, I've had so many things on my uh, hard drive that I've been wanting people to see and to show mm-hmm. people, and I haven't been able to, and now we finally get to start that yeah. uh, with Savage Number 1 out uh, today as we record, and then Shadow Man coming out in April. And who, who are the creative teams on those two books? Well, on Savage, you have uh, international music sensation Max Bemis uh, is writing, who also has Moon Knight fame, um, and also, I believe, has a new vault out 
uh, new book out with Vault, I think. It's either Vault or Dark Horse. I have to double check. And then on artwork, you have Nathan Stockman of Spidey and uh, Doctor Strange. Um, and then Shriona Farrell on Colors. And Hassan Matsumani uh, Elhau on uh, Letters. And it's edited by Heather Antos. Um, and it's just a ferociously fun book. You know, Savage is a character that uh, really has built up some steam amongst the hardcore fans um, since he was first published back in 2016. And literally this book kind of shows you where things left off with the character, a quick fast forward to see how he's adjusted to his new circumstances, and then literally kaiju invade London, uh, putting him right back in his element of hunting dinosaurs, but in the modern-day world. That's awesome. Um, and that's the first couple pages. So it's it's a really fun, badass uh, story that just takes the premise of this character, this fish-out-of-water sort of saga, um, and just runs with it a thousand miles per hour. And the book does not stop for the entire miniseries. Um, and then on the Shadowman front, with the Master of Terror himself, Colin Bunn writing, hmm. uh, Bone Showing Artist, John Davis Hunt, Jordi Belair on Colors, uh, Eisner nominated, Eisner winning, I think, um, and Clayton Cowles kicking ass on letters in that one, and this is just a hardcore horror book. Um, I don't call this a superhero book. This is hardcore horror featuring Jack Boniface. And, yeah, that's coming out in April, and we're really excited because we're, we're looking for an announcement soon about the uh, remastered Shadowman game that Night Dive uh, Studios has been putting together. We're going to be letting folks know much sooner than later when that thing's going to be popping out, but it just might be uh, in opportune time. You might be able to read a brand-new Shadowman book and uh, have a little nostalgia trip playing one of your favorite N64 games as well alongside each other, so stay tuned for that news. Oh, that's awesome. That's so good to hear. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about... It's so exciting. Yeah. I was thinking about, since the last time we chat, I don't stay up on the news uh, the way, you know, you would think a comic book podcaster would, because I, I enjoy reading the stuff I like whenever it, it comes to me, and, and I like chatting to people just because I like them at this point. So I was wondering, you know, all the books that we talked about last time, the Ninjack and the Doctor Tomorrow and... I think it was Punk Mambo was was going to be uh, released as well with Adam Gorham. And I was wondering, I haven't been to a comic book shop the way I normally would as well. So these things kind of escape you. And I was just thinking how everything affected uh, the publishers who have these plans. They all get disrupted. Distribution is on, you know, f just trying to figure all of that stuff out. We can't go to comic book shops. Did you see, I mean, it's it's very hard to tell, but did you see a, a, a difference in how fans were consuming during this time? And did it affect the way you're going to go forward, perhaps, with m whether you're doing miniseries, digital? Did it affect that business acumen? Absolutely. I mean, if any, any publisher that's, that's telling you that, you know, they haven't been um, keeping an eye out and seeing new trends and, and what those trends are, you know, is, is either trying to play coy um, or they just, you know, aren't, aren't really paying attention. They, you know, what's fascinating is the industry literally shut down for two months, yeah. right? There were no new comics, yeah. period. Um, Curbside pickup became a thing, more online orders. Um, online sales are, are jumping through the roof. I'm not just saying digital, but just online orders 
stores in general right. have jumped through the roof. And what's fascinating is that on a title-by-title title basis, you're actually seeing either the same or increased readership, which is fascinating to me. But you're also looking at a publishing landscape where the majority of publishers have chopped down the amount of books they're, they're doing per month. And even still, you know, 10 months into this thing, um, there's, you know, there are major publishers who are still only at about 60% of where they used to be. Some are at 50, some are at 40. So it's, so there's a less product out there, but the sales per title are doing very well, uh, for a lot of them in ways that they weren't before. And that's something the industry that we've been hearing from retailers for years is just too much product, too many choices. You know, how can we get good, strong orders on them? Um, which is not an unfair thing. The other thing we're seeing is we're seeing tons of folks, you know, uh, webtoons is blowing up even bigger. Mm -hmm. Um, Digital sales actually, for the first time in many, many years, um, ticked up a little bit on comiXology in general, not just for us, but Mm industry-wide. But the biggest thing that you're seeing, leaps and bounds, and this is something that's been happening, but it's getting more pronounced this year, is middle-grade content. Um, content for young readers, graphic novel sales, adult graphic novels and middle grade uh, are the two biggest growing areas um, in the entire industry right now. So you're seeing people that want material for younger readers mm-hmm. um, because they're trapped at home right now. You know, they, they're not at school as much. They need material. And then you're seeing adult graphic novels because people are changing their consumer habits as well. Um, and then manga has gone berserk. Like, it, there's a resurgence of manga in the last year, two years, you know, that will knock your heads off. If you look at the best-selling YA books, it's all manga. Like, the top ten spots are manga. It's not even new manga. It, it's backlist. People are just going crazy with it. Mm-hmm. So, from our standpoint, you know, we're looking at all of our options. We're seeing success on crowdfunding. Yes. Things like, you know, Berserker, Power Rangers... Um, images in there, Dynamite's doing it, IDW's doing it. Like, every publisher's starting to get into crowdfunding. So we're looking at our options for stuff like that. We're looking at middle-grade material. We're looking at young adult stuff. Um, we're looking at the, the feasibility of doing OGNs versus, you know, miniseries. We're looking at the feasibility of taking breaks in between arcs with our biggest characters as a way of giving people time to catch up build a little bit of fervor and uh, have renewed sales pushes within the stores to make it easier on the retailers, you know, treating these, these story arcs almost like seasons of a, of a yes. TV show. I mean, we're looking at all of that stuff, you know, and if you're not reevaluating every single, you know, assumption you had about the way this business runs, you're not doing your job right. Like absolutely. Now is the time, you know, necessity creates innovation. Yeah. And that's what we're looking at doing as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree with like as as much of a catastrophe 2020 was in many ways, um, especially for people running businesses and all of our normal habits, like it just got thrown amok. The the things that happen because of it kind of informs us just about our culture and even for someone on your end, what people are consuming, how they consume, because like for me. Uh, just on a tangent, I started to read in larger collections because you just mm-hmm. you're not going anywhere. So I, I I don't I don't read these small little graphic novels anymore. I want a, a big hardcover to read 
large portions of story, even uh, Valiant included. I've always preferred reading Valiant in, like you said, those kind of season feels. Um, but it, it is interesting because I didn't buy less. I just bought different. And it right. changed my whole way of collecting. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah. You know, and that's that's what we're seeing across the board is is like a lot of comic shops are actually doing as well, if not better, than the previous year. It's just what they're selling is a little bit different, and the formats that are selling are a little bit different. Comics comics are are thought to be recession proof, and the reason is because even if you can't spend money on a vacation, you're still willing to drop twenty bucks on on a graphic novel. Like it's the cost isn't as high. And it's still something very enjoyable and very personal, and it's a community. And that's the, the biggest thing that we're seeing out of this whole thing. So stores may not be selling as many $500 statues, but they're selling much more um, graphic novels than they were. And that's, that's a fascinating kind of pivot that you're seeing right now. But it's one that is very encouraging for the whole industry. So for, for someone such as yourself... Uh, now that you have this library of Valiant with a pretty rich history as well, now with it was it 2012 when when the whole relaunch occurred officially. Yeah, yeah, 2012 was when um, some Valiant fans relaunched the whole shebang. Yeah. Um, so now we're we're eight years into it at this point. We're almost coming up on our 10 year anniversary. Yeah, which is amazing to think about. Yeah. So you guys have. The, the Valiant from the 90s and then the Valiant from the 2010s now to to use as, oh, as this mean, wonderful library. You, yeah. You've got V1, and then you've got the Acclaim years, and then you've got the 2012 relaunch. You've got three, version, three generations of Valiant, basically. Right. So is there um, plans for reproducing collections or re-releasing collections? Because... Some of the stuff needs to be read like forever, in my opinion. I, I tell people all the time that the original Exo Man of War is one of the best runs of comics from 2012. It was so good. The same with the Ninjak from Matt Kent. Like, those should always be, I feel, in people's hands to have as an omnibus, as a hardcover, whatever it might be. Are there plans for more of those like bloodshot complete collection sets to come out? Um, are there plans? Yes. Okay. Uh, COVID kind of threw a few of them uh, for a loop and repositioned them on the board, so to speak. Yes. Um, but, uh, but yes, there are plans, uh, particularly for Shadow Man, uh, for some really cool formats for stuff like that. And then we got to see, then we really need to just see sort of what the viability is for, um, um, what's it called? For, uh, for trade paperbacks, honestly, that's the biggest question mark I have is kind of pricing around it. What it would be? We're actually also right now from the digital standpoint, we're also creating uh, new uh, versions of the collections. Our Valiant Classics line, uh, we've already we're putting out there basically in chronological order of publication. Okay. Um, so if you go on Comicsology, you can check them out now. Um, and uh, we're actually about to approve the cover for the next one. So, so you're seeing us, that's, that's a place where we're dipping into digital and seeing how to respond there. Uh, but we're also still looking at, you know, some of the larger formats for, for some of those classic characters. Uh, Shadow Man has been on the docket for like a year now. So we're, we're looking to see where that falls in 2021. Okay, that's cool. Very cool. Yeah, so I, I always wonder mm-hmm. how uh, people, 
companies decide the price point for their trades and their collections because there there's just seems to be some type of system to it but as a consumer i'm always curious of how like what what are the factors for you in deciding how big your your trade is going to be uh page count wise and what the fair price point would be for those collections how do you for for it value all comes down- it comes down to it comes down to a couple things. One, it comes down to um, how many pages do you need to complete the story? Because okay. you need to you need to make sure that you're you're giving a collection that has the you know a great start, middle, and end point. Right. Um, from there, you've got to look at what your production costs are, what your printing costs will be. Okay. You've got to look at what your terms are with your distributors. Okay. You know, how much of every sale do they get? How much of every return from the book mm. market do they take out of it? Um, you've got to look at similarly priced um, content from other publishers. You've got to look at similarly priced content that you've done in the past and what your your sales history is. Um, then that really gives you a determination for how much do you think you're going to sell in? How much do you think you're going to sell in six months? How much do you think you're going to sell in a year? How much do you think you're going to sell in two years. Those are all the scenarios that we tend to look at when we set our print order for trade paperbacks, hardcovers, um, uh, on the buy and everything of the sort. Mm. So you put all that stuff in a blender. Um, and sometimes it's one of those things where you go, well, we, we think that this price point for this item makes sense based on the marketplace. Okay. How many orders do you think you're going to get? Oh, that's plenty to make a good profit on it. Great. Um, or, oh, well, we're, we're going to make, you know, X amount of dollars, most likely, you know, it's, and it's totally acceptable. Um, and you got to go from there. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's still a business. So you have to look at it with, with a P and L standpoint as well. Um, but yeah, generally the, the marketplace and your sales history and, um, all the production costs and distribution costs that go into it, you put that thing into your equation basically and, and you go from there. And that becomes the determining factor. Do you have enough demand? Do you have generous enough terms with your distributors? Um, do you have a price point that is um, at a certain level that's going to guarantee that the program is successful? Um, and, you know, as close as you can get it to a guarantee, which is almost none. Hmm. <laughs> right, right. But it's a nice theory. Right. Do you find at all any, there's any trends of sales showing that people, if it's packaged with this, whether it's a deluxe hardcover or whether it's somewhat of a compendium or or something a little bit more of an upgraded version of the trades, that people suddenly will buy those, uh, that like there's an uptick or there's like this particular market of people who will only buy it for that reason because it's almost like, oh, I got to have every omnibus that there is. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of it. There's there's a different customer for almost every format. You right. know, there's there's a completionist who will buy one version of every format that you put out there. There right. are those those folks there. Um, but there are some people that only collect hardcover editions. There are some people that collect hardcovers and on the buy and that's it. They don't buy a trade paperback, they don't buy single issues. Yeah. You know, and it's a little so it's a different it's a different marketplace, as you say, um, depending on the format that you have there. Um, and it's kind of fascinating to look at, you know, and, and some are a little bit bigger than you would think, and some are smaller than you would think. Yeah. Um, and they're very vocal in there. All of our additions in those formats are taken with that particular customer in mind. Yeah. 
I asked that question because I'm one of those weird people who may not have bought it in a five issue trade, but suddenly it was released as a 13 issue. So I have to, I have to read that because there's mm-hmm. somewhat of an importance suddenly to it for them to reprint it like this or for it to be, you know, in this deluxe version. I, it means it's important. I got to read it now. I'm one of those weird purchasers. <laughs> You're not weird at all. There's tons of, of customers like that. And you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing too, is you're also looking for value. Yes. You know, we also find that that's a very real thing is, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys, like I, I've gone back and forth on single issues and honestly, since, since the pandemic and I'm not able to get to the shop as often, my, the amount of single issues I've been reading are way, way down. Mm-hmm. Um, in print, I've been reading a bit more digitally and then I've been buying more trade paperbacks and more hardcovers. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is, you know, the the mentality right now, people want to binge. Yes. You know, you, you look at, you, you know, Netflix is, what, twelve ninety nine a month, and you get 100,000 hours worth of content at your fingertips. Yeah, you um, can watch and it And it's, it's that sort of mentality that's peaking, that's continuing to get bigger and bigger in the... Um, in the comics industry. Uh, again, you look at, I'll point out again, the manga sales, mm-hmm. the manga sales are amazing and it's all backlist. And why it's because some manga series have 150 volumes that you can just plow right through. And they're a good price point, a great amount of pages and you can read them forever. Right. And so some people want that experience. People want that binge mentality right now. Um, and it's, it's a very real thing, and it'll be really fascinating as we open back up and as more people can go into the shop week after week after week, um, how that's going to translate into the new normal. And we're just not going to know the exact answer of that until the end of this year. Yeah, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see what that new normal is just when you know people get back to going, hopefully, we get back to going to our comic shop every Wednesday and having that sort of congregating experience that you want for the 20 minutes that you're there picking up your books. Like there's something special about it and it'll just be, what will conversations be like? Will you know, will people be more tense? It's just an exciting time all all around to think of. Oh no, don't say that. No one will, people won't be more content. How dare you? No, no, It's not the nature of fandom. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's just interesting no, to see community. how we'll all. Yeah, it's it's true. I think I think people are really itching for it, so I'm I'm excited. Oh, I think so too. And and one of the ways that we see that is the response to stores doing um, live sales on their Instagram and Facebook hmm. um, accounts because you can comment and you can talk to each other, you know. And it's it's a it's a virtual community community sort of experience, but it's still there. Right. And it's, you know, and it's, it's one of the things, it's, it's a place to congregate. It's a place of community. It's a place of acceptance. Yes. Um, and that's, that's something that people are absolutely going to be craving. And I think that I, I foresee nothing but a boom right now. I think comic shops, first of all, are doing way stronger than a lot of people expected. Um, and that's thanks to the ingenuity of the retailers, the commitment and loyalty of the customers to their community. And I think that this whole industry is just primed to take off in 2022. I really do. I see nothing but hope for, for the industry and for comic shops. Yeah, I, I, 
I tend to agree with you because just the way that it sustained itself and even like you said before with um, uh, Kickstarters and the like of people putting out ideas and getting their books made and people wanting to, to find something to read from any type of outlet. It's just really hopeful that, that people are clamoring for this medium. So I think the, the cons will be... They'll be different, but I think a lot of people will want to go. I don't think we're going to see this thing disappear anytime soon. No, I, I agree. I think, you know, the, the industry's not going anywhere. I think conventions, conventions are my biggest question mark, honestly, when it comes to the industry. Yeah. What conventions are going to look like through 2022? How many there are actually going to be? Um, you know, so much that drew convention business are meet and greets. Yeah, you know, and and that's a very that's a very different um, kind of model that you're probably going to need to have in 2022, and what type of safety guidelines are going to go from there, and what capacity restraints might still be just out of precaution, sure, if for the first half of 2022. So I I see you know I foresee um, conventions bring coming back and kind of eking their way back in. I don't see the crowd sizes being allowed to be as big. No, I, for probably I think the you're first right. half of 2022, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and I think it's going to be a real question in terms of how people are comfortable with the sorts of fan interactions and meet and greets and how that's going to be done. And, and I guarantee you, like you're, you're going to have new regulations. Like I don't know that you'll be able to leave the convention floor and come back the same day. Right. You may need to have proof of vaccination. You may need to have a negative test. We don't know yet. You know, right. there's a lot of question marks uh, for what the best safety practices are going to be. So yeah. we, we go from there. Yeah, but but hope is is the key. That's the thing. Stay hopeful, and, and it'll come and, back. Yeah, yeah. It will. It will all come back, and it will come back very strong. It's just a question of how fast and in what ways, and and how patient can we be as that side of the industry figures out what it's going to be like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of things that never go away, but always seem to come back as big, let's talk a little bit of wrestling for the last couple minutes. Do you mind? Oh, are we at that part of the conversation? Yeah. All right. Let, let, let's get into it, because I, I, I can't have a conversation with you without asking some wrestling questions. Um, the one thing that that is my happy place lately on uh, social media is watching people's wrestling fan pages, and it just makes me see all of these classic matches. And then on my search, I see you know Scott Steiner in, in his '90s heyday giving people uh, Steiner drivers and and not knowing how they live to see the day the next day. Uh, it's so much fun. So I, I I got some retro wrestling questions for you, but not maybe not even retro, but just I wanna I wanted to pick your brain for a second. Um, I'm honored. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. So, you know, I'm a big Bret Hart mark, but in the process of, of rewatching some matches, I was watching a lot of Owen and seeing Owen's matches mm -hmm. from Japan and then watching Dynamite Kid. And it made me think, who, in your opinion, are the greatest wrestlers that never had a, a world championship title around their waist? And I, when I say that, I think of more WWE and WCW title. They may have won it in, you know, 
their their AWA. So we're not going we're not going with like AWA or or Japan or anything like that. You're talking about strictly the those big two. The yeah, let's say the big because that's the ones where people will always you know he was he never held the strap in WWF or you know he never held the WCW title. All right, so 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 to go to your and my time of fandom, I think you got to put Kurt Henning up there. Yeah. Um. You know, Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect, never won the NWA World Championship, the WCW World Championship, and he never was WWF champ. Right. Um, he had that run with Hogan in 1990, like 89 into 90, um, had a great program with them, and just they, they never pulled the trigger on it because WWF was, for many, many, many decades, a babyface-driven territory. So it was about making heels for your babyface champion, so he never, he was just wrong place wrong time um but one of the best workers one of the best talkers uh, i think he's got to be on the mount rushmore of guys who never held that title um for me next up uh, i i think you could make an argument um for scott hall yes um, I think Razor Ramon, Scott Hall, had all the tools. If he was, you know, I think in the mid-90s, especially if you wanted to end that diesel experiment a little early in 95, Scott Hall as world champ would have been perfect because um, Michaels wasn't ready yet and Hall was a made guy with the Intercontinental Championship. Um, he never won it in WCW. He fought for it a few times, but never actually reached that echelon. I think he was a Phenomenal talker, another great worker, and a totally different style from Kurt Henning. Um, and then to give you a third, um, oh no, I was going to say Rick Rude, but that's wrong. Rick Rude was WCW international champion, so he counts. Um, yeah, I, I I put him in that category too because I. But then I said, man, he he got that thing with WCW, but. He deserves way more credit oh, for his Jake work. Roberts. Yeah. yeah. Jake Roberts. Yeah. Um, oh, you know, I'm going to go with a heel. I'm going to go with a heel. Ted DiBiase. Yeah. Um, never got to be the, the, the champ. And, man, that dude had so much heat in the 88. If you were going to put the belt on a, on a heel champion, that was a great one to do it with. Um, he's a guy who absolutely could have carried the strap in either organization um, and been the top guy and talked him into the seat. So yeah, I'll I'll go with I'll go with two uh two heels. Um well I guess all three of them were heels at various points. So I'll go with uh Diviasi, Hall, and Henning. Good picks. Those, what about you? Those Where'd were you go? Well, Kurt Henning was the one that made made this pop into my head because of just how good he was. And mm-hmm. the turning point where he had to leave because of his injury and then that kind of yeah. took the next, you know, Brett being the next Intercontinental Champ to beat Mr. Perfect propelled him to, you know, the Roddy Piper match and just showed this promise in him. But I I wondered, I said, had Kurt never been hurt, could he mm-hmm. have could he have been that first world champion based around that technical style of wrestling? Would he have been the flag bearer for that instead of Let's say Bret Hart, 
because he people always say once he became champion then Shawn Michaels realized I could be champion and then those those mid-sized guys who could really work and wrestle suddenly saw hope for themselves. I think I think Randy uh, Savage did that but he was just such a big character and he almost he 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 fit the mold of of like a superhero action figure toy the way Hogan did. So it's mm-hmm. he kind of did that but I don't know if people like Kurt Henning or Bret Hart were in that same sort of... I don't know if people would have bought them, but they could have been. And I wonder if, if Kurt Henning would have been... If he didn't get hurt, if he would have been that guy in the 90s. I think you, I think you raised a really interesting point. You know, to look back in fantasy book, if, if Kurt had never gotten hurt in 91, right? You know, Hogan was winding down. What would 1992 have looked like? Um, if Kurt Henning had been able to still go full-time at that level. I think there's a great question to ask there about that, because 92 is wide open, and that's when Vince was looking to really experiment with with a a workhorse kind of champion. Um, Even if he wasn't champion, he and Bret Hart probably would have been the marquee matchup for the first half of Bret's title reign. So I think I'm with you there, man. I think the possibilities of what could have been are are really tantalizing. Yeah, he was he was so good, and I think he he deserved that moment with that belt because of the work that he put in. And I think you know the more I I watch old wrestling and really analyze what made it carry carry that um, mythology with it in a way that still make of make us watch it today was the person that passed the title on said just as much of that next person's abilities, right? For Warrior to beat Hogan meant everything. For for Brett to beat Ric Flair was really indicating the caliber that we needed to see this next person. And in, in the case of Sean too, right? He didn't beat Diesel for the title, but when he beat you know, the, the champion, the wrestling champion, it really said Shawn Michaels is officially the best. So it, it makes you appreciate yeah. those guys like a Kurt Henning who lose him passing the title would have been almost the same thing as when Brett passed the title to Bulldog. They said, oh, this guy can really carry the show for us. Even though he lost, he's the next one. It's usually the, the way it goes, right? Well, I mean, you look at you look at the history, right? And it's one of those things where you know your your job as the champion is when the time comes to make the next guy. You know, that's your 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 goal is to make, because if you lose to a nobody, you only hurt yourself. So you've got to make like look at Brock Lesnar and Drew McIntyre is a phenomenal example of that, right? Like Brock made Drew look like ten million bucks in that program leading up to it. From Royal Rumble all the way through WrestleMania 36, Brock Lesnar did everything in his power to make Drew McIntyre the next big star and to say, no, it's believable and it's right that this guy beats, you know, the most dominant champion in the last 20 years of the business. So it's, it's one of the things you, and, and they'll, you know, you hear it in interviews, like they take pride in making the next guy. And part of that pride is, look how much money we can make on a program after you beat me. And I'm chasing you for that title again. You know, so much of it too is like, it's not just about in the moment. It's about like, all right, what's next in our story. You know, Hogan has gone on record and said, 
I wish I could have turned heel on Warrior after WrestleMania six and think of the business we could have drawn. Would have been crazy if he'd done it in nineteen ninety versus nineteen ninety six. But he went out of his way and he made Warrior the guy. He did the you know, he tried to make Savage the guy. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things and you're to your point, like Bret Hart and Ric Flair did not get along, but Ric Flair was a professional and knew that his job was to make Bret Hart look like the world champion and to do everything in his power to do it. And he did it. And that's, that's how those guys are. That's pride in, in making the next guy and creating a new star to work with and put the title on. So, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, no, there, there, is, there is something to it. There's an art to it. There's a tradition. There's a, a psychology. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, people who kind of, some people say, oh, it's so silly. But then some people who get it, there's something to understanding storytelling and drama. And you, repre- you appreciate it's more. Theater. Yeah, yeah, it's theater. Exactly. And you appreciate more. Now oh, when I watch, when a guy rolls out of the ring to make that walk around the ring and, and interact with the, the fans, and mm-hmm. talk, I appreciate those aspects of a match now more than just the action. And I didn't always understand that. Well, the beauty of it is you probably always did. You just didn't realize it. Yeah. You know, and that's how it was for me, like, growing up. is like, why why doesn't this excite me the same way as this does? And it's like, oh, it's because this, they, without even realizing it, they were conveying how much this one move meant or how much or what they were thinking at this point in the match, you know. I'm, I'm doing a rewatch of every NXT episode, um, and I'm up to 2000, like, almost at Brooklyn TakeOver 3 in August 2017. And I'm telling you, watching the Johnny Gargano, Tommaso Ciampa saga from how they created DIYs through their two-year run together, and now I'm finally at, like, the breakup, and now we're starting to see the rise of Johnny Gargano and just, like, this epic saga, all these little details, all these little lines and looks aside to each other and little moments and matches that you don't, you know, appreciate in the moment, but you see the storytelling is there all the way through. Brilliant. It was the same way with the mega powers exploding. That was a year and a half long story that we rode the wave of. Um, You know, and that's, that's good stuff. That's, that's when it's great. And when pro wrestling is great, it's hard to top of any art form. It's true. I, I remember, I felt for me as a kid, there was a lull after, WrestleMania 12, I didn't care so much for wrestling during that spell of the Sean reign, the mm-hmm. Ahmed Johnson. I, there was just something about it that, I don't know, I checked in, but I would check out. But then in, in when Stone Cold became this person and he was calling out the hitman mm-hmm. and then you didn't, you really, the lines were blurred between everybody's relationship of these guys all really hate each other sure. backstage. Like it felt... You couldn't not watch it because it felt like they were out of sk- out of script, like they were breaking character now, in a way, and you had never seen that before. But it was all part of the show, which is that's where, like you said, with the mega powers, they, they, we really believed that there was tension between them. They sold it so well. Oh, and and there was. <laughs> right, right. They worked themselves into a bit of a shoot. Right. <laughs> Because, well, I mean, it's one of those things, especially, not as much now, but before, like, you lived the gimmick 24-7. Like, I, 
you know, hearing the stories of Brett talk about him and Owen going through airports, and they purposely made sure they were never on the same flight, that they would not be in the same airport at the same time. Um, you know, no one saw them go into their parents' house at the same time. They tried to make sure people knew that, you know, really believe the bad blood, you know, get the neighborhood kids asking about it back in Calgary and what's going on. And, and their family would tell it and be like, oh, yeah, we're trying to, we're trying to bring them together for a family dinner and, and try to have them talk it out. And, and like, they were playing that shit up for real every yeah. step of the way. So good. And, you know, nowadays, though, you blur the line so much and you let people so far in behind the scenes, it's really hard to have that sort of, Magic. you know, to, to blur the lines like you used to. And so it's, it's different. It's, it, it evolved. Your access to them has changed things. Social media has changed things um, in such an amazing way. So it's, it's one of those things. It'll never be exactly like it was, but that doesn't mean it's going to be any less important or less enthralling. You know what I mean? Like it, it just goes through its changes, the way that everything in entertainment does evolve. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's true. I was watching on Christmas Day, I think, with my parents and my wife. WrestleMania 30 was on here, and it was the main event with Daniel Bryan. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't seen that match before. I knew what had happened at WrestleMania 30, but um, watching this match, everyone at first was like, are we really watching this? But by the end, they were all totally hooked in. To really figuring out what the heck was happening, yeah. I could t I could predict the story for them just because of understanding wrestling psychology and WrestleMania history. It's the moment you crown somebody, so you, I knew what was going mm -hmm. to kind of happen. But they were they couldn't understand how the guy who was ta being taken out in a stretcher was suddenly going to win the match. They didn't figure that out, but they were totally sucked in to the to the finale That's of awesome. it. Yeah, and I saw it happen in in you know live action. It was hilarious to me. I said you guys realize before you started you're making fun of me. Now you're all like tuned in and feeling bad for this guy. They got you. You see what just happened? <laughs> Um, that's, that's, that's exactly what it should be. That's right. beautiful, man. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so I, before you go, I got one last question. I saw recently that you received <laughs> as a gift the beautiful Intercontinental Championship, which I always felt was the nicest looking belt. I know a lot of people feel that way. I don't know why. <laughs> and you have the, the white leather strapping, the Shawn Michaels uh, belt in my head. That's what I, I refer to it as. Who was your favorite Intercontinental Champion? Ooh, uh, favorite Intercontinental Champion. Okay. It's a very hard question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think... Oh, man. Um, I am probably going to go... Based on eras, um, I think grown up, I've, I've got to put um, Bret Hart is, is one of the greatest Intercontinental Champions of all time, maybe my favorite of all time, because he was, I mean, he worked with everybody and he really made that title, you know, feel as important as, as the heavyweight title. And I'm not saying Kurt Henning didn't as well, but, um, but I think Bret was, was my Intercontinental Champion growing up. And then you know what? Of of another era, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some a name out there that I think one of the greatest intercontinental champions of all time who does not get enough credit for being one of the greatest intercontinental champions of all time 
is Shelton Benjamin. So okay. he's he's on my Rushmore of the greatest Intercontinental title holders ever. Very cool. Because um, at that point in time, your job was to deliver in the ring, night in and night out, no matter how rushed the program was, no matter who you were working for, how above or below in the card. And I thought Shelton Benjamin's run in the mid-2000s was nothing short of fantastic. Yeah, it's it's so funny how a lot of times the guys who become the biggest name in the company, we have this real, real soft spot for that time where they were the the real wrestling champion. Like when, when the, you mm-hmm. know, Kurt Angle and the Chris Jericho's and, and the Benoit's were having those triple threat matches for the, the European title mm-hmm. or for the Intercontinent. Like it, those were the matches you really cared about because like that guy – that guy is the real best pound for pound guy because, like you said, those Kurt Hennings and those Bret Hart's—they made that belt. It's like this is the belt I want for him to want that belt from Roddy Roddy Piper so badly. It's almost why why not go for the big belt? But you want that one. What's so special about it? Because it was almost like saying I I can wrestle anybody. So weird, just to have oh, a belt. I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, this has been fun. Uh, next time we do this, I'll, maybe we'll focus in on a wrestler and we'll, we'll talk about our favorite matches of a, of a legendary Hall of Famer. I'm down, man. I'm down. If you give me a, if you give me a little heads up of who it's going to be, I'll, I'll rewatch and get ready. Okay. Yeah, you're, you're, I got a couple of guys that come onto the show who are as big of wrestling fans as you, but you got that, that quick encyclopedia knowledge to it. I like it that you're like the WWE network on tap. <laughs> Thank you so much. I wish. Uh, thank you so much, Matt. I, I always have a blast talking to you and uh, I hope we can do this sooner than later. I can't wait till next time. I hope everybody listening, if you want a ferociously fun read right now, pick up Savage number one. It's available now at your local comic shops, wherever comics are sold. Keep an eye out for Shadow Man in April uh, if we don't do another episode before then. Um, and Eric, thank you as always for, for having me. And in fact, actually, if anybody who's listening to this right now, if you do pick up Savage Number 1, we're running a really cool contest on Twitter where you can get some swag for free if you take a photo of yourself holding a copy of Savage Number 1 and post it on Twitter and use the hashtag Savage1. So get something really cool for yourself. Treat yourself. Enjoy the book. I can't wait to see what happens in WrestleMania season. And thank you again, Eric, for bringing me back into the cave. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And everybody, stay safe.